You've been busy, mate. Uh, I so yeah, no, not as much this week. I don't know what I'm saying I for. I mean, I just uh, it's been a bit of a quiet week. What December tactic coming up? Christmas. It's not coming up. These are getting released in January. It's not coming up. No, but my gigs are in December. Is what I'm talking about. I know, but we're aren't we pretending that this is like just before the podcast? Well, for anybody listening, we record these. I don't think we're very good at this, you know. Doesn't matter. Do you think it's something we'll get better at? We'll get better at it. Do you think so? I think. Do you not think the the actual podcasting bit of it we're getting better at? I think so. I just think I sound like a mumbling idiot, and I'm trying my hardest not to interrupt people because obviously what I've got to say is more important. You know, I mean, we, we all know that going in. Why well, you you think that? But <laughs> that's why you need good people like me around you. That's a good point. I do need you to ground us, otherwise. <laughs> that's why you need every good... podcast would just be us having a guest on and me talking about me. That's, that's why you need good people around you. That's why you get me and Graham. You know, just to keep keep things on a. So questions would be like, listen, yeah. tell us about the first time you met me. <laughs> well, who have we got on today? Today we have a fucking bit of a left turn, like. Yeah. Uh, What's his, what's his name? He's called Ralph. Ralph so you, you, uh, you would say to Ralph, yeah. Ralph, thanks for coming in. What, uh-huh. do you, what do you think of my singing? That's... well. R- I mean, Ralph, what, what do you think of my gigs? What, yeah, we could yeah. ask him that. How good looking do you think I am? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you... So we should start doing a quick fire round yeah. way to just questions like that. Who's better looking, Red or Ralph? You're a good looking guy. I know, but that doesn't mean quick fire, like, who's a... Uh, Oh, don't make them think about it, because then they'll just say... I mean, bang, 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 bang. Anyway, Ralph, man, is pretty fucking cool. Guy I met in a bar through Graham, who's also going to come do the podcast with us today. Graham, he's tough. Legend. Legend. In his own right. Hopefully he's still alive by the time we get this out. We'll see. Touch wood. You know what he's like. Uh, anyway, uh, Ralph is a professional expert violin, viola, cello maker. Mm. And we're going to go to his workshop to interview him and talk to him. Um, but he's no schlep. Like, he's. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm using that word again. I don't care. He's not just like a hobbyist man. I think he studied it for years and stuff. He's like yeah. a real expert on that sort of shit. So, and I don't know much about that. Like, nah. orchestral instruments, do you? Me neither. I don't think I've ever held a violin in my life. Fiddles, we call them back home. A yeah. lot, lot of Irish folk, traditional Did folk. Did you ever do any of that? Family did. I've got a lot of aunts and uncles that play a lot of trad music. Mm-hmm. Do you like it? Eh, it's alright. Mm-hmm. can take it or leave it. Yeah. Hope they're not listening. Ah, no one's listening, dear. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Ralph's pretty cool, but we're going to go to his place instead of my place, and we're going to have a look around his workshop and touch all his wood. That was... Come on. And his files and his saws and hammers Especially and his wood, though. They definitely have a look at yeah. wood. Uh, I love wood. Buff it up a bit, just give it a good shine. Yeah. Bit, of, bit of polished wood. Not sure he's going to like this bit when he listens, but that's fine. No. Bear with her, Ralph. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's go uh, Let's go find out. Let's go meet Wonderful workshop, that's nice, isn't it? That's fun. Yeah, yeah. It's worth mentioning, we're joined by uh, Graham Easthope again. Thank you. He said that like, oh, again. Again. Oh, again. <laughs> he just knows you, Graham, that's all it is. He brought his own mic this time, though. He did bring his own mic, oh. thank you. Well, thanks for having us, Ralph. No, you're welcome. Uh, when we start at the beginning, before we get into the real beginning, but let's start at the beginning of like violin making and repairing mm-hmm. and stuff, how you got into that and why you got into that. Uh, why I got into it? Um, it'll probably go back to when I was um, left. Castle side to move to Newcastle, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw we were looking for a new house to, to live in. I decided to travel to around Newcastle, and we bought this flat in Chinatown, and it just so coincided with the uh, the tall chips race, right? And that was like a sort of a life changing moment, right? I got into the music and, and the actual the, the ships that set which was going up was like something amazing I'd never seen yeah. before. The first then, one. 1986, 87. So for anybody yeah. who doesn't know, include me. Sorry. What's the tall, the tall ships race? Tall... It's like... It's, uh, it's where the tall ships are like T clippers. Yeah. And yeah. They're sailing boats, but right. they're ships. They're not boats. Yeah. They're ships. Yeah. Like three, two, three, four mast. Oh, okay. Huge. Yeah. Usually wooden built, yeah. old 
vessel. Do they not do that down in Hartlepool as well? Sunderland it moves well. around. Oh, right, okay. I think it's probably safe to say that the first one was the best one because it's been back. Yes, it uh, was, the yes. first one was great. I remember yeah. doing a gig at the first yeah. one yes. on a te in a tent on the quayside, and yeah. it was amazing. I mean, the music that week like changed my life basically. Right. Uh, I remember meeting this guy. Um, I think it was the final gig on the Friday night. Was it the Irish Tyneside Irish Centre night right. in the Bridge Hotel? And I yeah. thought I'll go along and check it out. It was absolutely wild. Yeah. The music was great. I love fiddle music. Right. And then I met a, a, a guy. Uh, Joe Crane, who's you know a long friend ever since, plays the Irish pipes, and uh, we just become good friends. And he says, "You're you're clearly enjoying yourself. Why don't you come along to some sessions and join in?" So I, okay. I started going along to the um, ship in on a Sunday, the Cumberland Arms Wednesday, Crampasado uh, on a Monday, and then Joe lent me a fiddle, which I hadn't a clue what I was doing, but I, I went along to the session because I, I wanted to part yeah, participate. Yeah. And I just sat there and I strum, strummed like a, like a mandolin because it's the same tune. And when I learned the tunes well enough, I'd, I'd eventually yeah. get the bow and start joining in. So that's what sort of like sp spiked me into music playing. Right. And then um, I was playing one night in the, um, in the Cumberland Arms. And towards the end of the night, this lad got up, packed his fiddle away. And we had him goodbye, right? I'm off, off. I says, oh, where are you off to? He says, oh, I'm, off. He says, I'm just going to apprenticeship with a violin maker. He says, I'm just going to go make violins. Wow. And I thought, nobody makes violins. These things are all yeah. ancient things, you know, so they're all made years and years ago. He says, no, no, I said, I've got an apprenticeship. So that very, the next day I went to Newcastle Library and uh, got as much information on violin making courses and I found three full-time courses, one on Newark, Nottinghamshire, uh, one in Wales, Cardiff, one right on the south coast, and I applied all three. I, I decided this was a time to change my life, if right. possible. You How know? old have you been then? then? I was thirty-four. Right. Well, that's, that's quite late. Yeah. Doing some sort I've, of I've been. Then. I mean, I'm working at the university for like fifteen years as a chemist, mm -hmm. and I spent half that time wondering how am I going to get out of this job. Really. <laughs> so I thought uh, the health and safety, because I was a health and safety rep, or the um, forestry commission. So. Um, yeah, I decided to go and apply for these courses. Nothing to lose. And um, I got interviewed two of them, one in Newark and one in Wales. And uh, the one in Wales offered me a place out of the blue. So I was really, really sort of shocked, to be honest. Yeah. Taking somebody on my age, 34, with no experience in making violins or anything. But, uh, and that's that's how I got into it, really. So, so was that, I'm imagining when you were working at the... It was at Newcastle University. No, Durham University. So when you went to Durham then, as a as a chemist. Yeah. Was that like must be quite well paid? Seems so to be. No, 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 no. I was, was a I was just a technician. I was okay. a chemistry technician. <laughs> I started off in the steelworks, 1970, uh, when I was 16. Got a job as a chemistry technician, and I thought from day one, <coughs> I'm, I'm out of this place. Really. Um, so how? Why? It was. Um, Smelly, noisy, dangerous. Uh, I, I was actually, prior to that, I was actually at Middlesbrough Football Club. I signed right. for them when I was like 14 on schoolboy forms. And I thought, I'm going to be a footballer, yeah. you know. I didn't quite get a contract when I was like 16. And so I came home and my mum says, so what are you going to do? I says, oh, there's a couple of football clubs coming in. Mm -hmm. And uh, something will turn up. And she says, no. You're going to go on the next bus and you're going to go to the steelworks and get yourself a job. So I did. I did. And in yeah. 10 minutes, I was on the bus to the, to the uh, steelworks and um, I walked down to the, to the TRD, the, the Technical Research Department. <clears throat> and uh, I said, My mum sent us for a job. <clears throat> she says, What's your qualifications? I said, Well, I've just come out of school. I've got CSEs, chemistry, woodwork, art, English. And he says, um, Tell you what, Ralph, he says, just come in on Monday and start. He says, uh, he says just come on on Monday and uh, join the, the apprentices at the, at the training hubs. He says, I see your qualifications are all right. And so he says, yeah. So I got on the bus back home and uh, I said, Mum, I've got a job. A job. Says, well, there you go. So that was it. But from day one, I thought, I'm out of here. 
Yeah, so what were you doing at the steelworks? Like physically, physically, what were you doing? I was a, I was a, what we call a wet chemist. So I doing wet analysis, just dissolving steel samples, right? And doing analysis of the different elements, nickel, mang manganese, yeah, silicon, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff, just to determine the quality of the steel that we're making. Do you think you've always been one of them people who enjoys? Because obviously, chemistry would be like that as well. And we'll move on to what you to this part of your life. Someone who enjoys like how materials work with things and how, mm. how things are made, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, 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 it was there by default, really. Right. I, mean, I, was, a, I was a chemist technician. Yeah. I, I thought I was going to be a footballer. <laughs> but um, but as you know, as the years gone by, I thought it's really made me think about what things are made of, you know. We're all basically made of atoms and yeah, molecules yeah. and elements, you know. So, it's, But, um, yeah, it's sort of... I very quickly became bored with it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Very, very repetitive. But um, I was determined I was going to get out, but didn't yeah. know how. And then about four years later, I seen a job for a technician in Durham University. So I thought, well, nothing ventured. And I uh, went down. And the reason I went, wanted to go there was because the sports facilities were free. Oh, right. That's, okay. well, that's, that's a bonus. So, so um, did you play much football again when you were Yeah, I continued playing football. Oh, amateur nice. football in the Northern League concert. Anfield playing, oh, Wayside really? League, so yeah, I think I played my last football game, 1991 or 37. Did you do that thing that footballers do where they get a round of applause and they cry on the walk off the pitch because it's the last game? No, I was always crying when I walked oh. off the pitch, <laughs> not much pain, so I thought, Ralph, it's time. Kids were like running running circles around me, so I decided yeah. back then. But I was, I was training as a violin maker then down in Wales, Yeah, and uh, it was a three-year full-time course. And um, that started in 1988. Uh, I don't think that's unusual. I think there's a lot of Premier League footballers that are kind of interested in chemistry, if you know what I mean. Do you? Oh, right. Sorry. Graham's got a sarcastic look on his face. He'll me go in there for a second. Yes. But it sounds like you weren't afraid to try new things, Ralph. Like, if you, you know, if you fancied a change, you're like, right, well, I'm going to do it. There wasn't like any, was there any hesitation in doing, like, Moving from one thing to the other? Not really, no. I think I, I mean, when I when I moved to Newcastle, I just got divorced, and so I was like, I built I built a house when when I was married, and uh, I was actually looking for a plot of land. Uh, when when we split up, because I, I want to build another house again, because I thoroughly enjoyed that. There you yeah. go, building things, making things. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Been quite a hands-on. Like... Yeah, I mean, at, at school, my favorite my favorite subject was art and wood woodwork. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, yeah, build a house, so I put skirting boards on, I could hang, hang a door, all that sort of stuff. But anyway, I sort of, um, we got, we divorced and then I wanted to build another house, but that sort of like fell through. And that's when I just ended up going down Newcastle. Um, and that's when I discovered the, uh, the tall ships race, which was like, yeah, was like a real life revelation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you, in the move from, the chemist job to uh, a violin yeah. apprentice thing, which is a very unusual job, by the way. Well, it was a, it was a course. It was a full time course. Yeah. Running. And was it well without being too personal? Was it well was it well paid compared to what your last job was? Um, um, well, the course was 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 a was just a, an educational course. All oh, right. It was, okay. it was like it was annexed to a, um, a school of um, further education, mm -hmm. and it was run by. Three or four students who came from the who were trained at the Nottingham School in right. Newark, and they wanted to open up a new school of violin making to to teach it as they thought it should be taught. Okay. And I was one of the, well, it had been running for about twelve years prior to that, and uh, so I came in in '88, and I got in just as just in time, because the clo the school was closed in 1991, which was the year I I finished the course. Mm -hmm. Now, there's only seven students in each year, so it was quite sort of, um, the, the, the level of tutorship was fantastic. Yeah. You know, there's so, so few students there. And, um, and at the end of the, on the, the last year, there was only seven of us in there, in the whole building. Right. So um, I was lucky to get in when I got in. To be and in this, in, when you're on this course yeah. and you're not making money from it, obviously. No. Uh, how that must have been quite well, stressful. Well, time. I used all my all my savings from the from the sale of the house to live for the three to, years. To live for the three years. And when you were there, what was your goal? When you were in this course, 
was your goal to be where you are now, or was it just like I was just, like, just having a clue where I was, where I was going to go or where yeah. it was going to go? I just knew that I just didn't want to be in a steel industry or yeah. you know, or, or, or a chemistry laboratory anymore. So, um, but I met met uh, met some good friends, and most of the students were in the thirties. It was like a like midlife crisis. People coming in right, for okay. a second career, and I think it was one young lad, Justin, uh, who was only eighteen, straight from school, and he was like the most the most talented of the, of the bunch. But um, yeah, most of the people were sort of like looking for a second career and right. moving on. But uh, so I didn't have a clue where I was going to end up. Mm-hmm. But at the during the second year, which was concentrating on repairs of violins, there was a tutor came in, Chris King, who had a shop in Cardiff, and um, I think he was quite impressed with my with my work and um, my attitude. And he said, "Look, he says when you finish the your final year, he says, there's a job for you. He says, right. you can come and work with me. So that sort of like was, that worry was off my back. So I could sort of concentrate on the final year, which was like making a, a test instrument for the for the exam. Right. So, um, but in the meantime, in the, in the summer, summer between my second year and third year, I got a summer job in Hong Kong in a violin shop. Wow. For, um, I was over there for like four months. And uh, it was quite a prestigious shop. You've got Stradivarius and Guarneri, Guarneri violins coming in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a high-end. People were flying from Australia just to come to that shop. Really? So it's, it was uh, quite a prestigious place. And um, I really, really enjoyed it. I, learned, I enjoyed Hong Kong. It was a great place. It was, yeah, it was just a great place and fun place to be. Mm-hmm. And she actually offered much as, at the end of the, um, before much as Ralph, come back at the end of your third year, there's a job for you. Mm. So I had another job offer as well. So um, that was another sort of worry, not, yeah. not, to, not to worry about really. So um, so what happened after that? Um, yeah, I came back to do my final year. And then at the final year, I got, I got quite a good mark for me final exam. It's got something like 96%, just short of a, a distinction. So on your third year of the course, did you have to make a violin on that? Would that have been the first instrument you've ever made? No, I'd made, I was the first student ever in that college to make or to start a fourth violin in their first year. Wow, really? So I made three violins. Where did you get the time? I was just doing it. I was, I couldn't, I couldn't get enough. I was actually going home. I was working at one o'clock in the morning in my bedroom. I was so, you know, so keen on Mm -hmm. the new, what I was doing. So um, when Malcolm says, nobody's ever made four violins in a year, and I thought, right. Yeah. So I was I was well on my third one, and I thought, I've got another three weeks. I'll easily get another one done. And yeah, no, I just ran out of time. I didn't quite get yeah. it finished, but um, yeah, I did start four violins. Yeah. So, uh, and in the second year, we, we had to sort of choose a project because we were being focused on um, repair work. So I chose to make a, a Baroque violin, just a standard violin, but in Baroque setup. Like, what's, what's that difference? It was like sort of 18th century um, um, period of music where the, the instruments were highly decorated. decorated. Oh, okay. Ah. And it was a different setup, much lighter, um, gut strings, um, less less tension on the, on the instrument. And it was just something I wanted to do. I wanted to do an inlaid instrument and sort of do all the fancy fancy yeah. work. So that was a project I was focused on during the on the evenings and stuff like that. Um, then on the third year, we had to go back onto the making thing. And um, so we had to focus on the, we were given a, a particular model to make. It was a Stradivari model from 1708. And we, we were all making the same instrument. So we all had to focus on that to get it as close as we could to Strad sort of our standards. Would that have been like the benchmark of? But the high benchmark that you, you're aiming for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stradivarius recognises yeah. the the master violin maker. Um, I've changed my mind about that. I think well, he's a, he, Ralph he was, Plum is the new. Uh, oh, no, 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 <laughs> not at all. I think there's um, there was different makers from his his era who I've I've, I've got greater respect for as makers. And um, there's a lot of myths about Stradivari. You know, he was undoubtedly the greatest violin maker. Uh, he was he made twelve hundred instruments in like. Uh, started when he was 14 he made his last violin when he was 93 so he's wow. been out for like 80 years yeah. but people have this 
must have this idea that he was just working on his own, little bearded guy making violins, yeah. bouncing them. But he had about um, he had a vast number of apprentices right. working for him, and uh, they were churning them out for him. And basically, he they were like his machines. Yeah, so production parts. line. So, so by the end of it, it was just line. He was coming along, bouncing yeah. them up, doing the fine tuning and all this lot. So, um, but no, he was like he was a, a master violin maker, undoubtedly. So, so in honesty, and please be honest. If you held up one of those violins that you were trying to make and the one you did make, yeah, how much difference would there be? Well, that's a good question because over the years there's been two or three um, competitions, or not a competition, but a blind test where they brought brand new handmade instruments mm -hmm. fresh off the bench and they played them against uh, Stradivari's, uh, Guarneri's and various recognized instruments um with a blindfolded test where the player doesn't know which instrument yeah, is yeah. playing and the, the 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 judges have been screened off so they they don't know which instrument's being played and i think two times a modern instrument has been chosen as the best sounding instrument really? on a you know on a blindfolded test yeah. where nobody knows so that yeah well i thought it was interesting there was like when you said you were asked or told or part of the course was to make a violin yeah but you had to make a what was it 1709 yeah a particular model yeah so so are the in terms of even antique or those old violins yeah. are there certain like models in oh, the same way yeah. as there are yes. telecasters stratocasters yes. sgs yes. really yeah. he, i mean stradivari was he never stopped um, experimenting. He was continuously innovating and trying different things out. I mean, the, the difference in proportions of the, the top of the instrument and the lower instrument can just by mil literally millimeters. And he was like doing different, different experiments. And he didn't re reach his peak as a violin maker until he was in his 60s. Right. So oh, that would wow. be sort of like 17. And he started when he was 14. He started when he was 14 with Niccolo Amari, who was like, um, yeah, it was, it's, it, that goes back to like the 16th century, like yeah. a dynasty of violin makers, family violin makers, and uh, don't even know where Strad came from. He just turned up on the on the Cremona census, age 14. Really, right. he started as an apprentice with with Nicola Modi. So when you buy a violin now, so you go yeah. out and you're yeah. buying a modern handmade yeah. violin. Yeah, do you specify a particular model? People can commission instruments if, if a player knows what they want. Yeah. But it always makes my heart sink when somebody comes, oh, I want a violin because I like this, this particular sound of this particular violin. And I would say, well, save up and go and buy it. Yeah. But I don't do that. I don't sort of, uh, yeah, I, usually people who ask that sort of question, oh, I want a particular sound, they're probably not quite as experienced. As because players. you you put your put your average um, violin in, in the hands of a professional violin, they'll they'll get sounds out of it that that your average yeah with all just due respect to, to average violin players yeah. they they just don't have the ability or experience to get the sound out of the instrument, whereas a, a top violinist very quickly will assess the instrument and knows oh, right. and will know what's required. The bow is half the instrument as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, I get that. I used to work in a music shop in Belfast, and we had an Irish fiddler that worked there. He was one of the sort of considered one of the top ones in Ireland. Yes, and um, he always said, "Was it? I think he said horse hair was the was well. The, that's that's the hair that, 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 yeah, that makes was, contact with the strings. Yeah. He said that was the best quality. Yeah, Mongolian Mongolian hair is the is the is the ultimate sort of hair for for, for bows. Yeah. It's the horses live in, you know, obviously wild sort of harsh conditions, and their their, their tail hair grows particularly coarse. Yeah, uh, right. Because you have to put that. What's the stuff you put on there? The resin, resin. Yeah, which yeah. is basically tree resin. You know, it's a sort right. of uh, yes. It's interesting though that mm. I mean, I'm wondering because you said like Stradivari would do mm. different experiments. Mm. Would that have been considered um, back then, like sacrilege that he's messing with the established? established violin like that he's no, trying no, no, that's no, why so. they go for it see what you can do because no, in, I, in guitar that happens yeah. if, if you see and imagine it, not so much anymore because you can get any, any kind of guitar with any configuration yeah. pick up wise but 
I'm, I'm assuming at one point in like, like when Ibanez started making different strats to what Fender did, mm. there'll have been people going, you can't do that, It's that's the holy yes. grail, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Don't mess with it, it's not broken. That's what so I mean. That I must have been the same with Rangers. What it was, it was like, um, uh, there was there was a major changes going on within Europe at the time because um, the economies were, were growing, expanding countries were, <coughs> um, uh, you know, economies were just like taking off. Mm-hmm. And Baroque music was confined to very small, like chamber music and all sorts. But as, as economies grew and people became more wealthy, the demand for music and the, they grew and grew. And so they needed bigger concert halls. And the, the Baroque instruments didn't quite have that, that oomph that needed the projection, which was needed. And so I think Strad was like um, lowering the archings down to get greater projection. But when you lower the archings down, you lose tonal quality. So when, when, when the Baroque instruments were quite high arched, so you have this beautiful sort of ethereal sort of sound, but it doesn't project very far. Right. So that's why you're, you're in the confines of, of a chamber mm. and you, it, it sounds fantastic. But when you put it in a concert hall, you can't hear these instruments. Mm. So what it was needed was there was like, um, there were changes within the instrument structure. He was lowering the archings, they were putting new bass bars in and uh, they were making them sort of like basically stronger to take the stress because string technology was changing. They were going from gut strings to um, metal wound gut strings <laughs> to give you more projection. So everything was changing. The whole scene, music scene was changing. So Strad was in, was quite innovative and he was trying to go along with that sort of um, economic change and demand for louder instruments. And when would this have been roughly? Well, the sort of he was i think he was 16 when did he move in 1660s he was 17 14 was like in the he died 1734 so he 17 let me get this right 1710 onwards was like it was a great change going on within within mm-hmm. the music world and then after he died, then was the music industry more or less sort of like um, uh, it was dying down a little bit. The demand wasn't quite there so much, and the violin making sort of like was beginning to die a death. But um, there was a transition period when instruments were sort of like being made. But um, again, there were uh, the, the the structure was the same, but the the, the string technology was was giving the instruments greater projection and uh people were trying to make a resurgence of the violin making industry which was like basically dying a death yeah and um so then there's the you got the transition period which was like sort of the uh what would be the late the 1780s into the 1820s and so that was instruments instruments were changing yet again Mm -hmm. the string technology and uh yeah, so it's it was a, it's it's a constantly evolving industry. Yeah. Really. You, when was when is that is that when you think was the biggest change of everything for violins, or do you think it's constantly de- developing? I think I think um, Strad got it right. I don't I don't think he can sort of improve on on sort of like his 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 ultimate structures. Mm-hmm. I mean, his he's perfected the cello shape. It's never been sort of improved on really. Mm-hmm. Um, all you can do is like. Uh, there was things going on in Venice as well, which were later com- they were competing with uh, well, everybody else, you know, all the, all the other cities. And Venice was quite a, um, uh, a a different sort of vibe. In, in there was people, were, there was a lot of trade coming through from 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 the Far East, mm-hmm. and Venice was a little bit sort of wild. Mm-hmm. And so the violin makers in in Venice were a little bit more sort of like eccentric uh, and stuff. Eccentric, so yeah. they, they were trying to. Put their own stamp on on the sound of things, but I think Stradivari the, the proportions start perfected. Basically, the cello can't can't be improved upon. Yeah. Same with the violin. So, so a bit like and I know this makes me sound a bit thick, but a bit like a Telecaster or a Stratocaster. When mm. Leo when Leo designed the P bass, yes, yes, you can do whatever you want with P bass, but it's never gonna. It's Leo's P bass is, is the is the is best bass ever. Yes, yeah. right. I, so that's yeah. similar to that then. Yes, yes. So I mean, I, uh, I mean, there was another maker who was a, a contemporary of Strad's, uh, Brunieri, and he was he was 
his great great grandfather was like a, a very well known violin maker, so he was like came into the into the violin making world, and he was actually I, I find him a more of an interesting sort of character, right? Um, but I think his his instruments also have a particularly different sound compared to Strad. In what way? I think Strad's when I, when I, when you listen to a Strad for me, the sort of like it's like ethereal, it's like out of body type okay. of thing above here. But when I listen to a Gunari, it's like in the chest, right. really sort of like a deep, deep sound. And I think it reflects his personality. So something you couldn't put your finger on EQ wise, but you no, could no. feeling wise. Fe feeling wise, yeah, yeah. definitely. And uh, I think I prefer his sound. When I make violins, I prefer to make his model rather than the Stradivari model. And are those, some of those models still the ones that are like the same? Where there's a strata various where they're like yeah. very expensive and stuff as well. Oh yeah, I mean now you'd probably pay as much for a Guarneri Del Jesu as you would for a Strad. Really? Um Strad 10, 12 million. Oh, that's crazy. How many yeah. of them are there still in existence? Well, he made I reckon he's calculated he made about twelve hundred in his lifetime. Mm. Six about six hundred of them have been recorded and the re the rest probably destroyed in the French and the Russian Revolution. Wow. So, um, so they reckon there's about six hundred still out there. Six hundred still out there, but probably less than a quarter of them are really, really worth playing. Decent condition. Yes, decent. Yeah, they must. I mean, from hundreds of years ago, they must. They must change shape, and they must. The wood must move. And yeah, well, I mean, do yeah, you get to the, the point where they're beyond repair. Well, the, the thing is, like violin cases these days, they're like five star hotels. Where in those days they were very, very basic. Yeah. And you look at the, the state of some of the instruments, you think. Good grief, you know, they, have, they must have just been chucking these things into a, a wooden yeah. case. But I mean, it's probably because at the time, they weren't worth that. No, no, no. It's the same reason, no, it's the same when you yeah. get an old guitar. Yeah. A lot of old guitars haven't been looked at because they were no. just a, they were just a yes. 300 pound instrument, but now yeah. they're worth thousands and stuff. I mean, brand new instruments these days, in a brand new case, they're going to stay pristine for hundreds of years. But, yeah. but now, you know, these things have had such a hard life, you know, in, in the sort of 17th, 18th century. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's kept me in business, putting them right and yeah. repairing. So did you do a lot of repairs then? I used to. I mean, it's only this last year I've stopped doing the repairs. Oh, I just that. want to focus on making now. Right. So I've been doing for like 30 odd years. And um, I've worked with most of all, most of the, the, the dealers in the country. Right. There's only a handful of them, but I've known them all and I've done loads and loads of work. Yeah. I've probably, I was trying to work out. I used to be working on three, four violins all at the same time. And so over the years, I've probably worked on, on average, probably one violin a month for the last 30 odd years. Wow. So, uh, and making has always been like a bit of a luxury for me. Right. But now I've sort of decided that um, I'm just going to focus on the making and... Uh, so yeah. do you know how many of your violins are out there? Um, not as many as I'd like, like yeah. I think, but I think I've probably made um, 20 odd violins, which is not a lot really. About a lot makes them quite rare then. Well, it does, but um, yeah, uh, probably about eight violas and about six or seven cellos. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I like I like focusing on cellos and viola making if I when I've got the choice. Why is that? Why? I just like I think with violas, there's no particular rules with them. You know, they've got a sort of like they've just they have the mid voice between the violin and the and the cello, and um, there's only one particular make of viola that I focus on is the brushing makers and he was like um that school was like six, 1600s 90s to the 1700s and 10s it was a really really good period of making for the violas then and they have a unique sound they're quite compact quite bulbous and i just love the sound of them so i yeah. don't bother making any of the model other than those ones well, would you use materials uh Similar to that period, then would you try and replicate the materials? As oh, I use the same as traditional materials as um, maple and uh, the maple back or poplar back. Yeah. Um, the front are nearly always alpine spruce because mm. the alpine spruce grows so slowly and the trees are like 200 to 300 years old. Yeah. So the growth is very, very fine. And uh, acoustically, there's like there's nothing can touch them really. So it's kind of been decided that violins, there's a, there's a wood that works with violin, oh, yes. kind of, which yes. guitars are made of all, everything. Yeah, so I was going to ask, would you never consider experiment, yeah. experimenting with like koa or, or even mahogany? Um, no, there are people who do that. 
Mm-hmm. And I think Australia, makers in Australia are quite more sort of like open to that sort of thing. Uh, more progressive, I would say. Yeah. But um, I'm sort of a traditionalist. Is it kind of like sacrilege too? Not really, no. No, I think there's no, you know, there's no, you make them out what you, whatever you want, really, as long as you can sell them and make it worthwhile. Okum is one of my favourite woods. What? What? Okum? Yeah. Okum. It's, a, oh, it's right. a Japanese mahogany. Right. It's like really, uh, it's almost the colour of that table. It's like a, it's like a, a, a light, violin like, well, well actually, the only reason I know this is because they, they did a Fender Okum. How do you spell that? Like, uh, O-K-U-M-A, I think. And that's like, it's quite a rare, I think, if right. I'm remembering right. There's, anyway. some, there's some quite rare bits of... We'll move on to that because I'm, uh, uh, like, I love yeah. guitar woods well, and that, stuff. That, so. that, that has nothing to do with me. That's that's Nigel Foster's. That's going after Australia. Is it really? That is, yeah. That's, he's, yeah, he's, um, he bought that about 20 odd years ago. And um, he's wanting to ship it out to Australia, but um, there's a lot of paperwork. I imagine there is. I think Yeah. Well, I've got some interesting woods myself, which I've acquired. That's why I want to stick traditional wood. But I've been buying wood over the years. From... So where do you get your wood from? Well, there's that been guys have been coming over. Grim. There's been guys coming over from um, from Transylvania right. uh, in, in Romania. Wood sellers from near the Balkans, basically. Yeah. Uh, the, the they leave over wood at night. They can't stand being <laughs> in the sunshine. <laughs> but uh, they've been bringing some fantastic stuff over, and it's always been sort of good value. So I've been sort of buying it when I as and when I could could afford to buy it. And I've got enough wood now to keep us going for the next twenty years if I'm still around. If you're constant, if you're making a violin, let's say, yeah. and you've got you need to use spruce, maple, and yeah. the one we haven't mentioned, which is one of my favourite woods ever, is ebony. Yes. Um, if you're making that, do you try and like make sure you're using a certain grade of this, a certain grade of that, and a certain grade of that, or do you have like would you sacrifice a slightly cheaper maple for a really good ebony neck, uh, sorry fingerboard or whatever? What are they called? Are they called, are they called fingerboards on violin? Fingerboard, yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the fingerboard is classified and the is classified as an accessory. <laughs> right. Although it is part of the instrument. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like um it's just something which you know you have to put on for the for the for the fingers to yeah, basically yeah. open down. And it sounds um, as if it's interchangeable. But, you can change the finger. Oh yeah, yeah I mean you could change the sound of an instrument <clears> by putting on a, a, a lighter wood. The reason they use uh, uh, ebony is because it's very, very durable, very yeah, hard. Very hard. They used to make them out of maple. But the but they were wearing away so quickly. Yeah, yeah. And getting grooves dug into them, and they were having to resurface them. So um, then they started veneering uh, maple fingerboards to make them more durable. But that was like, even in the 18th century, veneer, uh, ebony was a new wood, but was so expensive. Mm-hmm. You couldn't afford to make an ebony fingerboard. You just have to veneer it right, out okay. of ebony to, to give it a bit of durability. So would you never make, would you never use ebony for them? For anything other than the fingerboard, just the fingerboard, yes. Was it never something you would? It's too dense. It's it's very very uh, dense wood. Right. And so um, I I actually tune my fingerboards as well. I really? So, yeah. Well, sort of. How does that how does that work? Um. Well, I mean, the body has a res. When it's finished, um, the body has an actual resonance. Right. And um. By that, do you mean you could like tap on it and see that that's if you feel a signal into it from a from a speaker and hold it very carefully you, you, the body will actually suddenly start vibrating at a particular frequency wow so you'll know whereabouts it's strong its strongest point is as a as a as a, as a performing instrument uh-huh. um so yeah i mean i tune the, the tune the plates the front the back and they should be within a semitone of each other in, in an ideal world really so uh, and you can't sort of work and so get. How would you to... how would you tune a bit of, a bit of wood? Well, you basically you basically you um after it's a membrane. The front mm. and the back are sort of like a, are carved bits of wood basically, yeah. and um, it's like a, a membrane of the front is probably can go down to as thin as two mil or, or less, mm-hmm. or, or for a violin, um, probably three mil in the middle. Or on the back, it could be anything from four and a half to five and a half mil in right. the middle. And then it graduates out to, to about two and a half mil in the lungs at the mm-hmm. top and bottom. And then you, you're gradually tuning it as you go along. And also as the, there's a balance point where the, like physically weight-wise, mm-hmm. you've got the, where the, where the bridge goes, the, the plates, that should be the, the actual balance point between the, the lower part of the instrument and the higher part. Right. 
and then that then you know when you've got that you know that the instrument's actually going to be perfect so, so it's the thickness that dictates the you well, yeah you, you've got to you've got to you've got to thin it out gradually gradually yeah. thin it out and, and listen to the tuning of the plates as as, mm. as it starts you, you can usually tell it's starting to work yeah and speak well so you must sorry go on Greg. so before you start to make a violin yeah and you decide on the wood yeah. that is going to be used <clears throat> do you have a sound in your head in terms mm. of how that's you know i'm going to make it with x and yeah. y do you have a sound in your head of what you want that to sound like I, before you actually start that's a good question i'm um, not a, not an actual sound but i know a if feel. i'm going to make a, a particular if i'm going to go make a viola yeah. i know exactly what type of wood i want because i know that wood that particular wood cut in a particular way and worked a certain way will give a good brescian viola sound so um, yes, I, but I might say no. I must. It must be this. It must, it's, but I, I know the wood that I need to use when I when, if I'm making a particular model of a violin. If right. I'm making a Strad, I'll stick to really good figured quarter sawn maple. If I'm making a, a viola, I'll, I'll go for slab cut poplar, right. which is a lot softer. I mean, I think guitars were made with. Um, the best guitars in the 60s, 50s were made with Swamp Ash. Yeah, Swamp Ash is great. It's, re it's heavy though. It is and really, I, it, yes. and it's got a really, really, I had a solid, a solid Swamp Ash strat once yes. and it was heavy, but it was great. Yes. And I really think that's nice what and... makes the difference between those 50s, 60s electric guitars. Yeah. All, they used older as well. Yes, yes. Uh, okay. Which, which is light, lighter, isn't it? Yeah. But the other thing with, with those guitars were the, the, uh, the pickups were hand wound. Yeah, so you still get that now. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know you can yeah. actually, but um, well, I think when J Japan, the J Japanese buy the Fender company out, or did they so, Japan, didn't they? yeah, so the the uh, the Matsumoto Matsumoto or Matsumoto company, they they yeah. were a big thing that um, they were making like uh, yeah, Strat copies, yes, which were like um, catalog type guitars yes. and stuff, and they were so good that Fender bought the factory. Oh, right. um, and made them make so then in it, it was like the early 80s they made Japanese fenders okay. and those fenders now right uh, are really really collectible right because they were made in that in that factory yes. where I think okay. where the Ibanez stuff started as well right and that they're really collectible because at the time in the 80s this is just before squat like square do you know what square is it's like the yes the cheaper fender brand okay that's right. just before square um when they had this they had they had to up the Fender game in America because the Japanese ones at the time were being made way better than the American ones. Right. Didn't they um, stop using like machine wound pickups as opposed to hand wound? Machine, to be honest, it depends on which ones you buy. Because like, ah, right. okay. if, you, if you're buying something now with hand wound pickups, yes. you're probably buying a pretty like um, yeah. high end instrument because yes. most pickups are machine wound nowadays. Yes. Because yes. uh, it's just so much easier and, yeah, it, right. and it, it's so much more consistent. Yes. So right. when you listen to certain guitars from the 50s and 60s and when when I bought my 68 P bass, that had a 68 Fender yeah. Precision pickup in it, which yeah. was obviously hand wound, yeah. and it was fucking horrible. Right. <laughs> right. It was absolutely awful. I had to right. put a modern pickup in it because it just yes the pickups of those days. Until you start looking at things like PFs, which were yes. the Gibson yes. patent ones, they were all slightly different. Right. Okay. Because they were hand wound. Right. Okay. Yeah. So back to the question of, of, of a particular sound, and if I'm making a cello. Um, it's, I usually do Strad cellos, mm -hmm. and there's another there's another type of cello I, I like making. There's a um, guy called Gafrilla who was operating from Venice. They're quite compact cellos as well, so uh, quite small, but a completely different sound with Strad. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going for one of them, I will use a particular type of wood. So I do yes, I do choose me wood specific yeah. to the model I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to make. So so have you um. This might sound like a crazy question, but have you actually, when you were making these, have you ever, have you ever seen a Strad or anything yeah. like that? You, have you I've worked on them you, before, So you've yes. actually repaired them? In yes, the, I've, I've worked on them, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So you can, you can tell how close you are to those actual, or how close your violins are to those actual. Um, uh, here's, a, here's, here's an interesting thing. There's, there's these guys, um, these couple of American guys, um, Curtin and Alf, and they've formed a partnership and uh, they were making high-end copies of, of um, like top top soloist instruments, strads, 
Gunneris and all this like they, these guys were entrusted to make exact replicas of these 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 uh, instruments. And so what they were doing was they were, they were sourcing the wood from the same year that these 18th century violins were made from. Oh really? And they were making them sort of like to the nth degree, same thickness, everything, same purfling. Um, the, even the front of the, the instrument was was made from the from the same wood from the year that the Strad's trees were cut down. Yeah. And so they were making them so they were absolutely almost you could you could not distinguish one from the other. But when they weighed them, their modern copies were 20% heavier mm -hmm. than the 18th century originals. And they just could not work out where where the weight was. What, 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 well, does wood get lighter as it ages? Well, not by 20%. That's, yeah, that's, that's a, a really, number, really strange yeah. thing because see, um, I don't, well, the wood I buy is generally seasoned. Right. It's usually about three or four years old. I've got pieces of wood which are 20, 30 years old. Mm -hmm. But I think after about four or five years, it's probably seasoned enough. But the thing that in the 18th century, the, the trees which Strad was getting his hands on, the, these trees were being felled in the Alps and they used to, um, they used to come down on chutes right. all the way down to the rivers. It was a very dangerous job. And he's got a tree flying down a, like yeah, a, wow. a chute and then it would plop into, into the river. And they would just leave them there, and a lot of them would just like sort of below the surface, seasoning in the, in the, in the in the river for a oh, wow. for a number of years. And the, the thing that when the rivers froze, the um, the cell structure in the trees would 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 rupture. Right. And so when the, when the trees were brought out of the river, and cut up, there were sort of a, the cell structure was different to um, like. Trees which hadn't been yeah, seasoned because, because they soaked up water. So the soaked the, in water. This the is the theory. We're not really sure. Yeah. But yeah. You think that would make them more dense, though? Mm, well, if the, if the if the cells are rupturing, um, it's basically crumbling. I, I, yeah. I don't I don't know. I can't so understand do, it. Do these uh, these guys not try and freeze their wood and things like that? Do they <laughs> well, not try um, these techniques? This is, it didn't. It, it's a it's a new thing. But it's only the last like 15, 20 years that this has been discovered. Also, the know, theory so hasn't existed. It hasn't really. Hasn't right. been taught. It's just right. discovered how come these things are twenty percent lighter than yeah than yeah, the eighteenth century ones. So uh, modern modern copy sorry. Uh, Got a description of one of your violins here. Uh, this is for sale by Wright Violins, a nineteen ninety model you made. And it says the violin speaks easily and has an open, cheerful character. It's even across the range and allows its player to find different tonal colours with ease. So I just thought that'd be nice for you to hear a little description of one of your violins there. That's, that's the year I was born. 1990. Yeah. Just a moment. Yeah. It's the youngster. When was the last time you um, made and sold? Do you get commissioned to make I've got, uh, violins yeah, or do you got, make uh, them then sold? I them? just sold um, a commissioned cello about two months ago. Right. Um, yeah, it came out of the blue. I sort of had a bit of an ill health, um, got diagnosed with with, um, with something. So I had to go and have an operation. And just as I came out of the hospital, I got a phone call from, um, or no, it wasn't, it was a text message from somebody, it was a family saying, could, could you possibly um, make my daughter a cello? And how long will it take you and how much? So <clears> they said, they were good at the word, about five years ago, he came around with his daughter who was just about, 12 at the time says oh i'm so impressed with with the work i've done on her cello says oh when when she needs a full-size cello we'll come and <laughs> see you i says well you, just, you know where i am That's great yeah so yes and then um, when i told him i says i could do one in three months and i told him the price and uh he just texts straight, straight back he says yes please get get cracking and can i send you the money now really so um so you don't mind me asking what what sort of levels of do you, what sort of prices do your stuff start at? Uh, Eighteen thousand pounds for a cello. Shit! <laughs> wow. In that case, you would need a deposit, surely. Or uh, well, uh, he offered it. He said, oh, "I'll lot. tell you this." He said, uh, "Can I send you the money now?" I said, "That's very, very kind of you, but I says, I'd, I'd prefer just to get a deposit, yeah. and you can pay me when it's finished." Mm -hmm. well, yeah, it was a that. very, very good gesture, you know. But um, yeah, yeah. So that's where we're at. I, I suppose though, if if your 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 instruments are that well revered, mm. on the horrible chance that somebody did pull out of a pull mm. out of it, once you've started it, yes. you find another buyer. I 
I don't. I've never had problems selling. Yeah. Whatever I've made. And, not once. Um, not once. Wow. I even. I mean, the, 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 I sell them in the trade as well. Mm-hmm. I would say your customers are your but, customers are probably very serious. Well, yeah, they're going to pay eighteen grand for a yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, I mean, it has to be insured for more than that. What do you? How do you mean? Like, <laughs> you, can, uh, you can tell us the stuff you can't. You, you don't have. To, there's some stuff you can say. I can't talk about that. By the way. All right. No. No. Yeah. No. I, I. I insist that um, whatever whatever anybody <laughs> pays me for my instruments, I have figures which they must be insured for. Like my violas and my violins must be insured for ten thousand pounds. Right, that's to cover something being stolen or mm-hmm. smashed beyond repair, and it has to be replaced. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what it's going to cost the customer. If that if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, is that not? Is well, that, that, that would factor in labour and and time and things like that. But mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. untangible. If, if somebody comes to me and says, oh, I've, I've heard good things about your instruments, and say, I'll say, well, what's your budget? Mm-hmm. And say, well, I've only got this. I'll say, okay, I'll make an instrument, and then we'll talk. So when you, when, you, when they say that, when they say, I've got six grand or, or yes. whatever, do you, do you then go right over that? You're going, to be having, you're going to be having this wood on the... Oh, no, I'll, the... I'll say, if, if that's your budget, I'll mm-hmm. make a violin, and if you like it, we'll talk. I will not... I would never. Some I know some people say I don't sell a penny less than what what oh. if they got if they haven't got the money they don't get the instrument. Right. I don't right. work like that at all. Oh, wow, okay. I'd rather my instruments go into the hand of somebody who really wants it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's better for me. It's better advertising. Mm-hmm. I've took big hits on on, on really? some prices before. Yes. Yeah, but because I, guns, I because yeah. I just want that person to have the instrument. And without being without putting anything down like you do, which I'm definitely not, by the mm. way, like. Um, the profit margin must be pretty fucking insane. Um, you'd be surprised. Uh, not really. Really? The cello, like the, the last one I just sold, mm-hmm. there was about three, the materials, £3,000. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. So take 3000 off 80 and that leaves 15 Yeah. You then pay 20% tax. Yeah. So that's another 3000 gone. So down to twelve. Three months work. It's like four thousand. It, it sounds a lot of money. No, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, it's not three months work. It's three months of your work, not not just. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're paying not from a time. You're paying from expertise. Is that's what I mean? Yeah. Have you ever had one of yours come back and they've said, like, um, like I can't, the only thing I can relate to. Sorry, I keep yeah. saying it is guitars. So like when you buy a new guitar, yeah. Two years later, you'll have to get it, the frets fixed because the neck is shrunk yes. around the metal oh, yeah. frets, which won't shrink. Yes. So do your, does your stuff ever come back oh, and, yeah. and they go, "We need I, to tweak this." I tell them, I say, "I want that. I want that cello back in six months' time mm. because I know the neck's going to move." Right. And um, it depends where they've been keeping. I said, "Don't leave it out in the room next to the radiator. Look after it. Keep it in the case." So, uh, but I want to keep an eye on it, and I don't charge anything. I say, "I'll look. I'll look after your." If it comes apart, that's good. You want you don't want them to come apart, but I want them to come apart in the right place. So if, if I use certain glues, which which makes them not come apart, it'll the stress will come out somewhere else. Yeah. It'll crack. Oh, okay. So you want them if they're gonna come apart for whatever reason. You want them to come apart for the, you know, for the right. Is that, is that the most common repair that when you are doing repairs? What's the most common? Repair? Yeah, just just um, heat off the body. Yeah. Um, tends to open up the seams and things like that, which is just part of the territory, really. Right. So, um, yeah, it's not a problem. So, um, yeah. So, so you make violins. Yeah. You make violas. Violas. You make cellos. Yes. Do you make upright basses? I haven't yet. I've I always wanted a guy who plays I've, bass who would have uh, who would happily try one for you. Because <laughs> I've always wanted to make a bass. I mean, I've I've been doing all the bass work around here for years and years. Right. Who's your? I mean, around here you wouldn't have any competition, but worldwide, who's your? Who's on your level? How many? How many people like you are at that level? I think there's a lot of us, a lot of us around, and there's a lot of makers I really, really respect. I truly do. Um, yeah, and um, are you saying that just because this has been recorded? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. There's a, there's a handful of makers. We 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 probably know. We, 
not personally, but we know of each other. Yeah. And there's a, there's a handful of makers I really, really sort of admire. And um, they, they understand making mm-hmm. as it is. Uh, yeah, I won't name names, but there's a, there's a guy who lives not too far away from here, across the Scottish border, who I think is a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. But I really, I've even recommended yeah. his instruments to players. Right. I've even, yeah, so you know, that's, that's how high I hold Absolutely, David yeah. in esteem. You know, he's a good maker. Have you ever uh, come across a, a very expensive, a very old violin or viola or, or, or something like that and thought, it's a shite this mind? Yes. Have you? Oh, there's plenty of them. Yeah, Is there, there, must, I mean, there must be. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's loads of, yeah. I think that's the same with any. It's definitely the same with guitar. There's yes. loads of yeah, yeah. instruments. And yes. Exactly. But they're worth more because of what they are. Yeah, you're just paying for what they are. Yeah. 300 years old, so you'd, you'd cough up. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the difference between a fiddle and a violin? Is that what you just asked? <laughs> well, so we didn't discuss that, but we... Well, the difference between fiddle and a violin, violin is spelled V-I-O-L-I-N, <laughs> and fiddle is F-I-D-L-I-N. So there's just a violin. There's no difference. Yeah. The, 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 the story is that the word fiddle was, um, comes from a German family who were called Fidels, right. makers, and so they used and to make fiddle. I think that's the, that's the connection between fiddle and... Uh, so most of the music, most of the music that I would listen to that has these instruments in would mm. probably be country music as opposed to classical music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I lo- there's loads of great fiddle players like yes. Amanda Shires. Uh, yeah. Um, Alison Krauss is a great fiddle player, and then um, my favourite is a Scottish guy called Ali Bain. Oh yes. Who uh, yeah. do you know? Do you know Ali Bain? I've, I don't know. I don't know personally, but I've you know, I've been with, I've seen him a couple of times. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've seen him. With, I've seen him with the Transatlantic Sessions when he's yes. playing with Jerry Douglas and that. And he, right. He's, Phenomenal, but it's, yes, it's a very different way of playing a, mm-hmm. a, a violin compared to what like classical yes. music is. And yes, stuff. no, it's a different world. I mean, I, I'm, I was just basically a pub scraper. That's all I was was the fiddle, you know, right. the pubs and stuff. But just like the music, this you know, the the the, the, the evening. This, Would you listen to more fiddle music than violin music? I know you said it's no. I listen mainly to classical stuff. Do you, Do you listen to a lot of classical music? Then? Not as much as I'd I'd like to, but but when I choose to. It's it's classical sort of music I tend to. Mm-hmm. I just I think I sort of saturated myself in the folk scene. Mm-hmm. I actually joined the Tyneside Irish Centre, became sort of a uh, a member of the Cahaldas. I just want I just absorbed myself in the Irish in the Irish music. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, well, do you have to be Irish? Well, I was said them during the break. Cause I'm yeah, Irish. I'm my yes, family play the fiddle. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Why did, you know, why did you know it, please? I don't know that I, I like a lot of Irish trad, but couldn't listen to it for yeah. longer periods. I guess this doesn't mm-hmm. appeal to me. Yeah, I listened to nothing else for like four or five years. Really? Right, well, and I thought, but and then you've got some Beatles uh, mugs that we're drinking out of right now. Yeah. So when you're making your instruments, do you have music on in the background? Do you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've discovered Spotify. And so, it's been around uh, a while. It's been right a while. Has it? Yeah, well, it's my two sons. I don't I've think got, you discovered it. I I've got two sons. It's not like Columbus. I've got two sons, and just um, one's 20, the other's 18. And um, I brought them up well Beatles, Stones, yeah. Led Zeppelin, when they were toddlers. And we used to go down to Liverpool and we were doing the Magical Mystery Tour and all this. Yeah. So I bought them Beatles mugs and all this sort of stuff. So, um, so when you play instruments, then what do you play? Um, I don't play instrument. I can play the drums if that's an instrument. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but there's drum kit in the corner there, but it's gathering dust. hasn't been. I've not time to touch it. But uh, can you play obviously a bit of violin? And I, stuff, I can play. I can play the baron. I can. I can play bongos. Anything with rhythm. I can. I right. can do that. But I was just a scraper in, in uh, the sessions around the fiddle. Mm-hmm. But uh, I enjoyed the social side of it. You know. What famous players have have your instruments? Hands have been in their hands. Um, I don't know if they've become famous since I sold it to them, so I don't. I can't answer that question. Oh, right, well, okay. right. You must have seen your instruments in like. Have you seen it? Well, sorry, I've, I've been to concerts where my instruments have been played, that but not. Been not such it, a yeah, it was quite. Uh, it's been quite an emotional thing. Where was that? Just, oh gosh, uh, no, it was in Newcastle somewhere. Um, do you know? Would, do you know? You obviously know it's your instrument yeah, because you. I went there I specifically to hear it, but I can't remember where it was now. So. Um, so obviously it meant the world to you. 
Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't know, you don't know it's yours just by looking at it. You know it's yours. Oh, I can tell my instruments. Could you oh, just yeah. by oh, oh, looking at it? Yes, I can tell them. I just know. You must, have, you must have a great eye for I that. Just, sort. I know. Well, you did three years of studying yeah, these things. So it's going to know the, the yeah. difference. Uh, well, look, thank you very, very no, much no. for uh, being on this. It's been lovely coming oh, to your uh, workshop, man. It's fascinating. Right, well, thanks very much, lads. Yes. Thanks for being on it. Okay. Cheers. Cheers.